Well, it truly is an honor and a joy and a privilege to gather together this morning and worship our Savior and see some familiar faces. I've enjoyed just connecting with so many of you this morning. Maybe this is your first Sunday with us. You're a guest. My name's Zach, and if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you at some point today. But we are in part two of a series called Turning Point. So if you have a Bible, find John chapter 11. We're going to get there in just a few brief moments from now. But this is part two. Last week, Pastor Michael kicked off this new series by reminding us about some turning points. That turning points, they can, they can do several things. They can sharpen our focus so that they can, they can sharpen our focus. They can get us dialed into some very specific things. They can also get our attention and they can make us ask a really important question of what do I really believe about God? They can sharpen our focus, get our attention, and make us ask the question, what do I really believe? And that's what this whole series about turning points is. If you look at the storyline there in John chapter 11, you find the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, as you know, preceding these verses that we've been studying or that we're looking at today. Lazarus has died, and, and so there's a lot of turning points taking place in this specific storyline. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning, continuing with this theme of turning points as we look at the second part of our key section of verses this morning. So if you're there, in verse 25 of John chapter 11, Jesus says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Really important moment. But there's a word that shows up here in this text that we, we just can't, we can't just blast past. As we're studying this text, there's, there's a word that we have to take some time this morning and discuss together. It's a Greek word. It's, it's the Greek word apothnesko. And what it references is simple. It's a simple word, but it has very deep meaning. It represents two deaths. A physical death and a spiritual death. Now this takes us all the way back to the beginning. And you don't have to turn there because we're going to be bouncing through a couple of different sections, but there's a turning point that is laid out for humankind, for people. There's a turning point that, that this thing called sin enters the world in it, and it throws everything off kilter. That everything that, that God had created and given Adam and Eve there in the first part of Genesis, it was given to them to enjoy. And not just to enjoy for a season, but to enjoy for eternity. There was, there was, a, there was a process that God had, had laid out. It would, it would be theirs to enjoy forever if they would simply obey him. And we can look around and we can see what a mess our world is currently in. You can look into your own heart and your own mind, your own life, your own circumstances. Some are your fault, some are not your fault. But the world and your life is periodically in a position of mess. But that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. 
if only Adam and Eve would have obeyed. And as we look around, it's, it's not God's fault that we're in the position that we're in. This wasn't his idea. He saw fit, though, to allow his creation the ability to freely choose whether they would obey or disobey. And we're in this mess that we're in. You have all of the tension in your own heart and mind and soul because of apathnesco. These two deaths, this, this death, this sin that we're all dealing with. It's not what God had planned, but he always has a way to fix our mess and rescue us. You see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Pay attention to the words that he uses there. But there's one tree that you can't eat from. You are free to do anything, eat of anything, but just not this one tree, the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And this is God's way of, of, of saying to Adam and Eve something very simple, that, that you have the freedom to choose me or not to choose me. This is evidence that man was born with free will. But he makes the consequences very clear. If you eat of this tree, when you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So when Adam and Eve are tempted and they give in to the desire to, to their, their, they, they take a bite of that, that tree, they take a bite of that, that fruit, and at that moment, sin is ushered into the world. We could put it this way. Sin is kind of like a virus. It's just spreading, and it continued to spread. And the curse of that sin, the effects of that sin, they have now spread to everyone and everything that we see. And I know that's not necessarily the best news. If you were coming in this morning and you were like, man, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to get encouraged today. It's not, it doesn't sound real encouraging but it's the reality of the world that we live in. That we live in a world that is infected by sin and its curse and all the drama that is attached to it. And it's helpful to understand as we look at what God said in verse 16 that the curse of sin, that it would bring death. This, this death, it means to be separated. That, that death is separation. That we come into this world. You and I, all of us, have come into this world alive in the flesh, but spiritually dead. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through that sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This deadness this sin, it affects every area of our lives. And maybe you are visiting today, maybe you don't have a church background, you don't know a whole lot about the Bible, you, you, you know somewhere something went wrong. You look around and you see all of, the, all of the chaos and all of the tragedy and all of the bad things that are happening, and you know something got messed up somewhere, but you're just not sure how. 
Well, this is where it all got started. This is where it all went haywire. But there are, there are several areas in which this, this death, this apothnesco, affects us. If any of you love to read, uh, there's, a, there's an author, Francis Schaeffer is his name. He writes about a ton of the ways that, that sin has influenced and infected our world. And so this morning we're going to look at several of those. He's written about a ton of them, but we're going to look at the top four, five, six. I'm not even actually sure how many there are, but I should have counted before I said that. But here's the first area that we see this death, this apothnesco affecting. Humans are dead psychologically. Now, sin separates us from everything, but sin also separates us from ourselves, from who God originally made us to be. You see, God made mankind perfect in his image, holy and separated. So Adam and Eve, when sin came into this world, they suddenly felt something. They felt a lot of things that they had never felt before. They, they felt this psychological separation that they had never felt. They didn't necessarily know what that meant, but it had some effects on them. In Genesis 3, 7, it says, Then, the moment that they sinned, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Now, can you hear a few of the ways that death has taken place? In that one single verse, they felt things like shame. They, they felt guilt for the first time. They had never felt those things at any point prior to this moment. You see, when sin entered the world, so did things like insecurity. If you feel insecure about certain things, that is the effect of sin working out its work in your heart. And in your mind. Things like anxiety show up because of the curse of sin. For the first time, they, they felt self-conscious. conscious. They experienced frustration. They experienced fear and depression and disappointment. All of these things are now felt because of this psychological separation now that has taken place in God's greatest creation. The second curse of sin is that humans are dead spiritually. Sin doesn't just separate us from ourselves. It separated us from God. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they, they hid from God in the garden. And, and all the jokes that get said there, like, oh, yeah, sure, you can hide from God. They couldn't. But that's the effect that it has. That even though maybe you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, when you sin, it forces you to, to try to hide. You try to either hide your sin or to feel like there's a way that you can just hide from God. And, and for those of us who know, we know it's not possible because it just simply separates us from him. So our sin 
We are born separated from God, and, and there's a penalty for that sin, and so we're born with a separation, but then when we give our hearts and lives to Jesus, even when we sin after we've been saved, we still feel that separation. Like Adam, when we, when we feel that distance from God, and some of you know what I'm talking about because maybe you're living there right now, that you're living a sinful pattern, and because of that, you feel the separation from God. And in those moments, I often hear things like, God has left me. Or God doesn't care about me. And often it's not him who has moved. It never is. It's us. It can feel like he's the one who's left you, but that's what sin makes us feel. It makes us feel separation. And then sin bleeds into other areas, some specific areas, our social life. Humans are separated socially because of sin. We are separated from each other. I mean, as soon as sin came into the world, Adam and Eve, they started to turn on each other. I mean, you see that, you know, the blame game began there in the garden, you know. Uh, they, they tried to blame each other for what had happened, and, and before sin, there, they, there was no shame. They were, not, uh, they were unashamed, and they experienced true intimacy together. Those of you who are married, you know what this looks like. Those of you who have relationships with someone else, maybe it's a friend, it could be with your children, we feel separation socially because sin still affects us. Imagine what it must have been like to be married and have zero conflict. It would be pretty great, wouldn't it? If I wasn't such an idiot, we would have a perfect marriage, Brittany and I. Because she's perfect, like, she's like Eve. And I'm terrible. Cue all of the inappropriate jokes, but I'm teasing. So, sin affects our relationship. In that moment where I know that I have sinned against my wife, I'm reminded of this social separation. It affects us, it affects us all. With sin come present and future effects to humanity. Things like discord, divorce, um, accusations, racism, hate, jealousy, all these words that make us feel some very serious emotions, that's what sin does to us socially. It separates us. Next, we see that humans are dead or dying physically. That the moment sin entered the world, Adam and Eve, they began the process of dying. Yes, they, they grew in age, but they experienced things like disease and physical pain and suffering and sickness. All of these things, they entered the world because of sin, and, and they would eventually experience physical death in their body. Again, that's not what God had in mind for them. It wasn't his idea. Eden was going to be forever. But because of sin and its effects, 
every day after the day we are born, we are slowly dying, getting closer to eternity one day at a time. And I know that sounds depressing. It's just the facts. And it's important to keep those things in mind as we live in this world. Actually, it actually motivates me, though, to be more kingdom-minded. That I need to remember that my time on earth is eventually going to come to an end, and I need to be extremely focused on things that matter. One of the last ways we're going to talk about this, this issue of sin is that creation is cursed. In Romans 8, we see Paul writing that the creation has been groaning since the beginning, since the fall. And although we're surrounded by such great beauty, I mean, you can look outside most of the year here and you can see wonderful beauty, this beautiful world that God created, but even underneath all of that beauty, there is still something wrong. Animals and insects have become predators after the fall. The ground would be so hard to, to work. I grew up farming, and so I, I understand the process of taking care of the land and what it means to, to work the land. And, and I, you know, you grow up, and if you're a farmer, you know what I'm talking about. There is, there's like, oh man, if I just owned that section of land and that section of the country, I would have better crops. <laughs> that land is still cursed. It has its own unique challenges. But the ground would be hard to work. The curse of sin, it affects the environment. Things, storms and, and natural disasters and, and, and bad weather, those things did not exist in Eden before this moment. And as we know, it doesn't, it doesn't stay bad. The storyline does get better. But I want you to look, it'll be on the screen, verses 17 and 18 of Genesis 3. And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Sin is what brought pain to this world. Those of you who love to work in your flower beds and in the garden, I hate it. But my wife loves it. And so I go out there and fake it and pretend like I like it, but I don't. Don't tell her. But you're out there and you're doing some work in your garden. Your tulips are up. Your Easter lilies are growing. And then you find it. You find that thing called a thistle. And you're reminded, even though you're surrounded by all of this beauty and all of this life, you feel that pain of those weeds and those thistles. That's just a small reminder of the curse. Yes, there's beauty. Yes, there's so much going around. You know, maybe you dig up the, uh, a shrub and you get lit up by some ground hornets. That happened to my youngest son, Evan, a few years ago. Imagine five or six hornets going up your shorts. Not a good day. It's a reminder of the curse. You're walking through life, and it's predictable. You've got 
a good amount of money in the bank. You feel pretty, you're ready for a hard time. Your job's secure, you don't have any worries. You're hiking through life, you're just enjoying the ride, looking around at the scenery. And in a moment, everything can change. There's some kind of tragedy with the weather. There's a sickness. There's a fire. And it's in those moments that we're reminded that we live in a world that's full of sin and darkness. Pollution is filling the air. Water is contaminated. There's poison in the ground. The whole system is out of balance. The curse of sin has left us in a world full of weeds. We cannot escape them. But you have to think about it this way. Jesus didn't either. He lived in that world. Although he was God, he was also 100% human. And Jesus experienced all of the weeds and the pain and the tragedy and the drama of this life. He dealt with heartache. He dealt with hurt. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to lose someone that he cares about. He knows what it's like to be alone. He even knew what it was like to not have a home and to be sick, to feel pain. Jesus felt those things. And that's exactly what Martha is experiencing in our storyline. Her brother has died, and that is her experiencing the effects of sin in this world. They're being played out in her life. Her brother has died, and she is feeling the weight of sin's curse. She's feeling it. She's processing it. She's dealing with all of the reasonable emotions. But I believe God understands. And that's what we feel. You see, these stories that we read in the Bible in John chapter 11, and, and we see all throughout the scriptures, they're, they're not so far off base. They're not so disconnected from you and me today. The effects of sin and death, they felt them, we feel them. And it's what our world experiences every single day and will continue to experience until Jesus comes back. So what do we do? What do you do? I mean, is there a turning point for us this morning? Well, as Christ followers, if you know Jesus as your Savior, we believe in life and we believe in hope and, and we know how the story ends. We know how to find joy and life and excitement. We know how to process this issue of sin. We know where it comes from. We know why it's here. But we live in a world that's still full of it. Lisa Turker, she writes in her book, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, that we're living between two Edens. We have the Garden of Eden, but we have, we have eternity as well. And we're living in, in the tension between those two days. And so here's, here's what we do. Here's how we respond. Here, we, we simply just turn toward Jesus. And that's easy to say. It's not so easy to actually, to actually do, but we turn toward the cross. 
And we're going to do that this Friday. We're going to get together and we're going to celebrate and we're going to worship what the cross means for us as Christ followers. But in John chapter 19, he writes that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put that crown of thorns on the head of our Savior. And what happened in that moment is significant. Something very important took place. There was a turning point for mankind when that crown of thorns was placed on the head of Jesus. And he was nailed to that cross. And when that happened, Jesus was taking the weight and the curse of sin on himself. Through the cross, Jesus was now changing things. He was rescuing us so that we could one day be with him in paradise. See, he took the pain, he takes the hurt, he takes the weeds and the thorns of this world on himself. And it was visual evidence that what Jesus came to do for us. And that's the hope that we have. Because Jesus wore the crown of thorns, that changes how we live among the sinfulness of this world. You see, the turning point of sin, it brought death into this world. But the turning point of the cross, it brings hope. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8 when he writes to followers of Jesus there. In verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The people in Rome were encountering a lot of dark times. Very harsh treatment of Christians. And that phrase, present sufferings, is a general description because some of that present suffering can be very personal and it can be very unique to you. But all of us know what it means to suffer. Financial pressure, relational issues, physical disease. We've all felt that stuff. But present suffering is a very general term, but we have specific names for it in our own hearts and minds. If I gave you an index card this morning on your way in, you could write descriptive words explaining exactly what your present sufferings are. But they all exist because of the same thing. But here's the best news that I can give you this morning. What we have waiting for us cannot even be compared to what we are going through right now. And that's not to minimize our troubles or make them sound like they're trivial. Some of you are walking through some very deep pain. But let me be clear. What you are going through right now or at any point in your earthly life cannot be compared to what will be revealed to us in eternity. And that's the context of Romans 8. It shows us very clearly that God's glory, and this is what's hard about this tension, because that's easy for me to say, that what we have waiting for us cannot even be compared to what we are going through right now. That's easy for me to say, but our minds cannot even fully understand or comprehend what it is that God has waiting for us. And we won't get to experience that until we go to heaven or Jesus returns and takes us back there before our own death. 
And so the end of verse 23 says something really important. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul is speaking of these suffering Christians in Rome and what they're going through, and he reminds them of this truth that that there, there is joy for today, but there is also joy waiting for them. That means that no amount of present suffering should steal our God-given joy. It means that we are not to be people of, of despair. Of course we struggle. Of course we go through seasons where it's hard. But we don't live there because we are a people of hope. That's why you feel that tension when you're going through a difficult season. That's why one moment you feel like the, the walls are caving in and, and you're not sure if you're going to be able to get out of the bed the next morning, but then you, you read a scripture or somebody sends you an encouraging text and they remind you that Jesus is our hope and he is the way, the truth, and the life and that everything is going to be okay and you feel good. But then you feel bad again. And then you feel better. That's the tension that we live in. That's what this suffering and this present suffering is constantly pointing us back to. But something that suffering does is suffering has a way, though, of revealing where our hope really is. Let that sink in for just a minute. I mean, if you look around the last few years, and this has been the case since the beginning, since the fall, Many people have realized that what they've put their hope in outside of Jesus doesn't work. You can trust the stock market. It's not working out real well, always. Maybe it's in a medical advancement. You can go to the doctor every single day. You can see every specialist. It's not going to bring you lasting hope. Maybe it's in politics. I don't know. I mean, if any of those things alone are where we've put our hope, you've probably felt the overwhelming weight of those things not being enough. But when we say that we've put our hope in Jesus, we're talking about a hope that doesn't disappoint. And if you stay faithful to Jesus and you walk through those seasons and you come out of the other end, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because our hope is in Him, it changes how we respond to suffering and sin and darkness. It changes how we live out our lives in a world that is full of hopelessness and pain and hurt. And Paul is asking us to do something very simple. He's asking us to live in the tension and to compare two different things. In one hand, you have, you have what you're going through right now, this present suffering that you are experiencing in this moment. That's what Martha is feeling in John chapter 11. It's Martha's turning point in one hand. But in the other hand is what we have one day to experience in heaven. And there's this tension. Jesus is laying this out in the story of John chapter 11. You see it on almost every verse. Compare what you're going through right now 
to what we will one day experience in heaven, those things are not even worth comparing, Paul says. Paul doesn't deny that there's pain in this life. He isn't pretending that you won't experience some hurt and pain along the way. There is current suffering. But look, as followers of Jesus, we have hope that cannot be undone through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, the turning point of sin brought death. The turning point of the cross brings hope. There's a word that pops up in Romans chapter 8 quite a bit. In verse 23, it says that we wait eagerly. In verse 25, it says that we wait with patience. But I love the way verse 19 puts it. It says, we wait with eager longing and anticipation. That should describe believers. When we find ourselves caught in the darkness of this world, we wait with eager longing and anticipation. And that should describe how we live our lives among all of the sin and the darkness and the brokenness. If you believe what the Bible says and what Jesus came to provide, we have the hope of heaven. We don't, we don't have this, we don't wait in a begrudgingly way. We're not even supposed to be anxious about that day. We don't have any kind of, we don't wait in a, in a place of, of fear or being frantic. We wait, but we wait joyfully. We wait with an expectant hope. We wait with a confidence that no one else could ever have. I don't usually take time to talk about such a dark topic in its entirety on a Sunday, but I think it's important as we approach the Easter season to be reminded of why the Easter story is so vital. And we're going to celebrate that next week. <laughs> this, this, this sin and its curse, it's, it, has been, it has been taken care of because of Jesus Christ. Yes, creation is cursed, but Jesus came to take care of the curse. And so we wait with eager anticipation, with patience until the day that is fully realized. But until then, we turn toward Jesus and we spread the hope of the gospel to a world that is broken and hurting and separated. You see, the turning point of sin brought death. The turning point of the cross brings hope. So many of you have experienced that turning point in your life. You have come face to face with the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb, and you've believed in the gospel. You've repented of your sin and you've put your faith and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you and he has saved you and his spirit has come to live inside of you and you have been made new and you have a new perspective. Yes, you still struggle, but we live, we live differently because of hope. But we live in a world 
that is hopeless. And maybe the turning point for somebody that you love is for you to lovingly explain to them why this separation is there in the first place and what hope really looks like. You see, the turning point for someone you love, someone that you work with, it could just be a simple invitation to come and see, to come and know. This is Tyler's story. I was invited to West Hill my junior year of uh, high school. I came here so that I could try to make friends and just like have some kind of community. I didn't have that yet. Um, I wasn't too much into the church stuff. I grew up Catholic, um, but that was more like my my family's religion. That's that's what usually what I say because I really didn't have any part of it. I didn't partake in it. Yeah, so I was I was not a believer before coming in. The best way I describe myself would be more ag- agnostic. Um, I believe that there is something out there. I, you know, I believe that there's some higher power, like whatever that was. It just wasn't like the guy of the Bible. For me, everything, the Bible, all that stuff was just like, was just fairy tales. It was just cool, good, moral stories that you can tell, tell people. And if you follow it, you can live a generally good life uh, for that. But it had no, like, had no bearing on me. I've struggled heavily with with depression throughout all of high school. Um, And before being invited, I was really struggling hard with it. And around around that same time, my uncle had actually um, committed suicide. Um, And the weird thing about that was that actually, instead of bringing me out of that, that actually sucked me in and deeper. Before coming here, I would have no one to like talk to about that. It would just be me, me, myself, and I just, wallowing in, in self-pity and hopelessness and all that. My, my friend that invited me back in high school had no idea that I was struggling with, with depression, with suicidal thoughts, with, with any of that. He just took a chance on, on asking me and I was open enough to, to accept. If I hadn't been invited um, to church, it, it sounds pretty drastic trying to say this, but I 100% know that I would have been, I'd be dead. Like I know 100% without a doubt, I would have I would have already like like committed suicide um, if if I hadn't been um, invited. Really, what what had changed that was was after being being invited here to West Hill, and then being here for for at least at least a year or two and getting to know people and really getting to know. To know Christ myself. Um, that's one of the great things I think about my story is that I was able to come to him on my own. It wasn't it wasn't forced upon me, it wasn't anything my, my parents wanted me to do or had me do. It was it was a I'm broken um, and I get to get to fully come to the to this to God, to Christ, and then get to know him better. And while I still still do struggle with, with depression with all that what changes now that I have Christ with that. Since being invited to West Hill, um, I've had great opportunities to grow. Um, he gave me great opportunities to meet a really core group of friends that 
We started hanging out in high school and then we, st we still hang out now. He's truly blessed me with, with friends that I never really thought that I would ever like really have. Pastor Zach, who, who at the time was the high school youth pastor, asked me to do like games and like um, try to be like, like the, the fun guy. Uh, LOL. Um, going from just being the guy that did the games, then I got I got roped into them being a small group leader at one of the camps. And I really enjoyed doing that. And so then they let me continue on doing that. So I was doing games and also being a small group leader and really good to to also like pour into into these kids that I know I had a lot of struggles at, at that age. And so that allows me to to serve in a way of I get to help out or try to help out the best of my ability with these kids that are can be going through, through the same struggle that I went in high school. I had no idea that this would be be the um, be, be one of the paths that I would end up end up going down. It was never a thought of mine that you know one day I'll be I'll be back here doing doing this. Looking back at, at, at my life, I would say that being invited to church was was a huge a huge impact impact in gain and know Christ. I 100% believe that it did it did change my life. That that someone invited me. If I had to describe myself in in a few words, um, I'd probably say before Christ, um, hopeless, um, charming and beautiful, and then after be hopeful, charming and beautiful. Yeah, I, I need more time to think about some adjectives. <laughs> Honestly, I had to think about what an ad adjective was. I'm 100% happy that someone took a chance and, and invited me to church um, because being here has, has changed my life over the, over the course of being here. Um, it's changed it from something that I thought was gonna, what I was going to do to whatever God has planned and so I'm super happy. You see, the hero of Tyler's story, it's not West Hill Baptist Church. It's Jesus. And I fully believe that Jesus changes things. I fully believe the gospel is everything. Tyler explained it. He still lives with that tension. But he lives with a different hope. He was hopeless and charming and beautiful. But now he has hope because of Jesus. There was a turning point that took place for Tyler. And for all of us in the room this morning, we've all come to that turning point where we had to put our faith and trust in Jesus to save us. But we live in a world full of people who have yet to make that turn. And that's why we are so passionate about building relationships and sharing our stories and bringing people to come and see. Because we believe that there is a day coming that cannot be compared to these present sufferings. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is going to return. I believe in eternity. I believe that there is a heaven that is awaiting those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, and I believe that there is a hell prepared for those who do not. 
So that was a turning point for me, and it was for you. And so who will you invite, who will you bring to come and see, to come and know? How many Tylers do you work with each and every week that a simple invite and a consistent invitation, invitation given could make an impact? Could that person you work next to today that you know is bound for an eternity in hell be leading a small group in five years? And have a different story to tell? Because we cared to tell the story? Last week, many of you got one of these invite cards on your way in. But they're still throughout the building. And we asked you last week to take that invite card and to think about the person that you were going to give it to. And we've been praying for those people. Because next Sunday, we're going to celebrate our risen Savior Christians. We get excited about that. And that's fun. And I look forward to it every year. But it's, it's, it's the highlight of every Sunday, by the way, for me. And every day, I live differently because of the gospel. And so whose life could be changed because of an invite? Tyler's was. My family's story is different because... Someone took the time to say, hey, come to church with me. Come and sit with us. Come be with our family. And we did. It was a turning point in the storyline of my family. And it could be for someone you love as well. So grab one of these on your way out. Invite someone to come next Sunday. I'm going to be open and honest about this now next Sunday. We're going to answer that question that Jesus asked Martha where he says, do you believe this? We're going to ask those who you invite if they'll believe. And will you live like you believe it? Because it matters. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful and we're thankful for this time to gather together today to be reminded of your truth, the world that we live in, what's wrong with it, how it's broken, but how you came to fix the mess. And so God, I pray that we would be a people who live in that tension. God, we have been redeemed and rescued. We still live in a fallen world, so help us to follow you and to trust you and to do your work in this world. God, use your people to take your gospel to a world that needs it. May we be faithful. May we be found faithful on that day when you come to proclaiming your truth and your hope to a world that needs it. We're thankful for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.